welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of next generation power meters, including the SRAM Red D0 power meter. Built specifically for SRAM's groundbreaking Red Grupo, the SRAM Red D0 power meter is compatible with all of SRAM's road group sets. Find out more at quark.com slash D0. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Kaylee Fritz, sitting across the table, as always, from Coach Trevor Connor. How are you, Trevor? I'm good. How are you doing, Kelly? I am excellent. We also have a special guest in the room today, none other than Dirk Friel, the co-founder and president of Train Peaks, which is, uh, I think, by far the most popular way for racers to quantify their training. That is, turn their training into numbers to help them ride better and faster. Welcome, Dirk. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Quantifying training is actually the subject of today's podcast. We're going to define a whole bunch of terms for you. We're going to talk about what should be on your Garmin and what you should be looking at afterward. And we're going to take a step back and have a bit of a philosophical discussion about turning athletes into numbers. Trevor, I think you wanted to start first with a bit of history on this subject. Really, the the origins of this podcast, besides the fact that we, we wanted to get into some of these terms that you really hear tossed around like TSS and FTP and normalized power. And I think there'd be a lot of value in people hearing what those terms really mean. But in, well, just face it, me being a geek, I started reading a lot of the the research on what's called the quantification of training, which is really an exploding area in um, exercise science, simply because we now have all these tools that can record so much of our activity that didn't exist even 20, 30 years ago that are allowing us to look at a workout session, look at an athlete in a way that we've never been able to do before. So I started reading a, a lot of the history of this, and it goes back to, uh, I think, one of the pioneers, they would say, is a, a Dr. Eric Bannister back in the 80s who came up with something called TRIMP, which we'll talk about in a minute. But one of the reasons that we're, we're really excited to have Dirk here is I can tell you when I read research, you very rarely see specific products mentioned. And when I've been reading all this, this quantification of training research, they keep mentioning training peaks. They mentioned training stress score, which is one of your inventions. And you really see just how much your tools have been part of this expanding field of, of quantifying the athlete. So I think it's it, it, it's an exploding area of science that you're central to. So it'd be great to really delve into it with you. Well, let's start with uh, with, with a, a pretty broad question. I think that in cycling these days, people are all kind of aware that we have a lot more numbers to back up what people are doing than we did even not that long ago. Obviously, the the invention and then popularization of the power meter has changed a lot. But then also we've we know what to do with those power figures more so than we did even a decade ago. That brings up the question, is it good to turn athletes into numbers? Or do we get uh, do we get the Team Sky effect? <laughs> <laughs> is that a question for me? Can be. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think at the end of the day that's the point. I think really at the end of the day, it comes down to your goals as an individual or as a coach helping athletes prepare for, you know, to, to attain their goals. If the goal is to complete the local grand fondo and it's your first event, certainly numbers don't have to play a big part. Really the number one thing there is, is frequency. Just how many times do you bike ride and maybe how many hours a week do you get out there and ride? But as you escalate that level of difficulty of achieving goals, you need to start looking out and finding new ways of achieving those goals. And it's, you have that art versus science of, of coaching. The more beginner of an athlete you are, the less of the pure science that you need. As you go up the, the categorization and cycling and you want to get to the next level. And now at the pro level, obviously every little kind of second counts, right? 
And so at that point, why would you ignore numbers? If your goal is really to achieve a grand goal of podium in nationals, you just simply can't do that off of feel and gut instinct. Um, and certainly at one point you could, and that's how it was done. The you old know, Merck's ride lots, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I always thought if you have a grand goal and you have tools available at your disposal, it, you, you get fewer and fewer excuses or more and more excuses if you ignore <laughs> the, the tools that you have at hand to help you in this day and age. Not everyone loves the numbers. We caught up with retired pro tour rider Phil Gaiman, who believes very strongly in the importance of feel over metrics. There's things that don't, it, it can't fix everything, right? It doesn't know. And, and I think the, the human body, like everyone has their own cycles and there's shit that they're never going to understand. And there's, there's days that like, I should not have good legs and I do. And there's days that I should have good legs and I don't. And I mean, like, if you look at TFS, for example, um, I flew, I did a tour of Utah. Yeah. And that's a high altitude seven day stage race. So I guess, I mean, I guess the, the proper thing to do would be a, to adjust your threshold based on the current altitude. And then the TSS would be accurate. But it's, it's you know, when the altitude changes, it goes, that race goes from 3,000 to 10,000 feet. You're kind of just guessing. You don't really know what your threshold is. You don't really know what your. But at the end of the week, you're, you're f***ed, right? Like we're all f***ed. Talansky set his threshold to where he thought it was, and based on that, it was his hardest week of the year. You know, including the the Tour of California and Catalonia, all these World Tour races, and you know, Tour of Swiss. For for me, I didn't adjust my threshold, so it basically looked like I hadn't done f- that week. So I'm just riding around in zone two. Is is what that? But that's not. How it works, and then I flew straight from Salt Lake to Girona. So now your time zones are off. That doesn't go into TSS at all. It doesn't. TSS doesn't know if you're if you're waking up at 2 a.m. or or whatever. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm a believer that all that stuff is bullshit, and you should learn your body. That's that's where I'm going. I think just over the years, like Frank doesn't need to tell me ride three hours at 270 watts. Like, I know my zone two is 270. Like, I don't need to be told. I If he says zone two, that's, I'm going to ride what my zone two is, be it altitude or, or whatever. So that's that, that takes a while to learn. And that's why I kind of think that power meters can be, they're a tool for coaches, but they can sort of be a, a crutch for, for athletes. If, when Back when I was coaching, if, if my athlete got a power, wanted to get a power meter right away, I'd say no. You need to learn what it. You need to learn what five minutes all out feels like without staring at a screen. Your answer, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So looking at this from a coach perspective, I mean, the first thing I will say is, you know, I have probably spent an unhealthy amount of my life on WKO. I purchased it back when it was called Cycling Peaks in two thousand three. So mm-hmm. I think that was its first year. Yep. And I also just learned why it's called WKO, because that's what the files are called, and it stands for workout. Right, correct. <laughs> so this has been a great yeah. podcast for me. I've already learned things. <laughs> the, the history. <laughs> but I will tell you, as a coach, there, there is always that danger of getting too caught up in numbers. And it's really important to keep it balanced. I think, I think the numbers are critical, and you can tell a lot from it. But certainly with my athletes, when they send me their files, I'm always saying, send me descriptions. We go, well, why do you want the descriptions? You got the file. I'm like, no, I need to see the descriptions. And I've talked to other coaches about this who have all said the same thing, that even though the numbers are great, sometimes the way an athlete describes a ride can tell you more about whether they're starting to push burnout than, than any number that you see. So it's always key, use these numbers. They're a fantastic tool, but also listen to yourself. Listen to the way you're talking. If you're not sleeping well at night, if you're getting grouchy with people, these are all the things that don't, we don't necessarily quantify that also tell you a lot about your training. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I, I'm by no means at all preaching that we should ignore you know, the subjective feel of the athlete and that rate of perceived exertion is so important. You might hit the numbers that were prescribed for you for the day, but did them in a horrible manner and you felt horrible and you just 
mentally barely got through it. There's certain workouts where that needs to occur, but that should not be the majority of your training. And so if, if you as a coach or self-coach, if you're getting those senses, absolutely the, the feeling, the subjective side of training is, is very important and that how you react to the training mentally leads into recovery. You know, and how well do you recover from that workout? So coaching by numbers is not painting by numbers, you know, <laughs> and, and I don't think we should all coach by numbers. It, the way I look at it is historically we've been coaching maybe before power meters, we were coaching in a two dimensional world. And now we have, my, my father always says it, it's as if you couldn't see very well and, but you didn't really know because you thought everybody else in the world saw the world like you do, but you get your first pair of glasses and you can now see half a mile and you can see the mountains and it's all, crisp all of a sudden and clear. the trees have individual leaves. Exactly. You <laughs> see the individual leaves and that is really what a power meter or numbers can bring to, to your world is you, you quite literally, if you do not have a power meter, you are seeing the world two dimensionally and you don't know the reason why behind certain things but the power meter can give you that extra dimension and maybe a little more knowledge around the reasonings why certain things are occurring and can give you in-depth feedback on your limiters and where to spend more time. Something I'll add to that. So there's often this perception that, hey, you have a power meter, you're obsessing the numbers, you're not really listening to how you feel. Sometimes that really gets flipped around with athletes. I've seen a lot of athletes that if they don't have the numbers in front of them, they just go out and they ride hard. And you can tell them, I want you to go out and do an easy ride. No, they still go out and they just hammer it and they pound right. it with their friends. There actually is a value as a coach to say to an athlete, don't break 220 watts. And when they send you the file and it's showing all these 800-watt segments, you go, that's not what we discussed. Yeah, exactly. That's the other benefit of just simply collecting the data. Again, historically, it was all about what are my numbers saying right now this second? And there's value in that. But I've always felt there's immensely more power to the numbers when you look at it over a long stretch of time and you see the trends over time. That paints an absolute picture, which is unique to each individual athlete. And I've sat with professionals that come to me and they'll actually have saved data, but they really haven't looked at it through that lens of the trends over time. And when you can point things out to them, it might take them to a new level of, of performance. That's a fantastic segue into the um, the pile of alphabet soup that we've written up on the board over here, which is all of the terms that that Trevor wants to define. And the, it is important that we define these because the rest of the conversation is going to lean on these terms quite heavily. It's a lot of acronyms. Those who are familiar with power training, and particularly if you uh, if you use pretty much any sort of software to to keep track of that training, you're probably aware with at least the concepts, if not the exact acronym. Trevor, I think you wanted to start with what you called internal terms or internal factors, things like TRIMP, heart rate, rate of perceived exertion. Yeah. So why don't we take a, a quick step back to the science and what you're seeing in the research. They've really taken a lot of these metrics and, and broken them into two groups, which we've touched on in past podcasts, this concept of internal measures versus external measures. So we talked about it and we, we uh, well, our podcast was don't throw out the heart rate strap. Mm -hmm. Heart rate and power are both very valuable because there, there is a big difference between them. Heart rate is what's called an internal factor. Power is an external factor. So an external factor is something that measures the, the work or the load that you did, but it doesn't really tell you what's going on internally. So for example, you're fitter than me, as I discovered when we were going up the Jamestown climb two days ago. <laughs> if you and I are both riding at 220 watts, yeah, it shows that the externally we're doing the same thing. But my internal response to that 220 watts was I really wanted to throw, pull over and throw up. <laughs> well, you were happy as can be in riding away from everybody. So it was a very different internal response. So it's, it's good to have both measures of what's happening internally and measures of what's happening externally. So I think of these as input versus output and it can be very complicated or a simple way of thinking of it is your car. 
you're given a gallon of gas and how far can you go with that gallon of gas? They have the input and the output. And from that, you have a measure of economy. Do you have a big Ford pickup or the Prius? What, you know what I'm saying? And you can train that. You can train your economy. So if you don't know the input, you don't know your economy. You're only looking at the output. And those two very much relate to each other. And you can track that progress over time. And I think that's probably the most important message here is, and, and this is what I'm hearing from you, is it is the interrelation of these internal and external factors that's so important. Looking at how your heart rate responds to your power. And they talk in the research a lot about the uncoupling. Whenever you see an uncoupling of the internal and the external, that's often a sign of fatigue. So if you're going out one day and you're putting out, a, let's say, 200 watts and you're used to seeing 140 beats per minute and all of a sudden you're down at 120, and another internal fa- uh, measure that's actually pretty good is what's called rate of perceived exertion. And basically you're feeling like, wow, this hurts a lot more than 220 watts normally <laughs> hurts. That's a clear sign of fatigue. Yep, 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 certainly. What I like to do with athletes is have a particular course that we can repeat and ideally around the same temperature gradient. You know, and one I do locally in, in Boulder is certainly going up left hand. That a benefit of that, you just have the effect of altitude change as well. So if I do Jamestown up or whatever 90-minute stretch of climb I want to do, you know, we have that advantage here. I can track that over time and see the decoupling. And there's actually an efficiency percentage that we have in in both training peaks and WKO. We have this decoupling factor. And you can track that over time. And so I, I really like to isolate it to particular workouts and go back and, and see that progress over time. And you can actually get insights into when you might want to change from the base period to the build period because you've maximized your returns on that aerobic conditioning. And then it might give you some insights into like, you know what, I've, I've really... I've come to the level of diminishing results in terms of that sort of training. And now it's, it's about time. And so it can give you some, I I guess, um, more feedback as to when to might change up your, your training. So we've kind of jumped ahead of ourselves when we're talking about how the internal and external uh, metrics interrelate, but let's take a step back and just look right now at the internal metrics and really focus on what's probably the most popular or most effective of the internal measures now, which is heart rate. So a few podcasts ago, we actually talked with Dr. Inigo Samalan about heart rate. He's a big fan of using it in training. And what he likes about heart rate is that it actually correlates pretty well with lactate levels or VO2, which are the, the gold standards for measuring that internal physiological response. Problem is you can't measure those out in the road. So as far as when you're out training, heart rate's the best internal measure that we got. And it's been used for a long time. We certainly had heart rate monitors for a while before we had power meters. We talked about Eric Bannister. So he created what was called TRIMP, which stands for Training Impulse. And it's, in many ways, the the grandfather of a lot of the, or, or possibly most of the training metrics that, that we have now. TRIMP simply took the training load, which was the volume, how much time you spent, and multiplied it by the training intensity or strain. Uh, he used heart rate, so basically it was you, you took the length of the ride, you multiply it by the average heart rate, and you get a TRIMP score. That was later made more complex where they, they weighted it by intensity. So higher intensity training would have a bigger inf- influence on the score than lower intensity training. My understanding is the TRIMP score is really the precursor for what you see in, in training peaks now, which is training stress score, or TSS. Certainly, Dr. Andy Coggan, you know, really took those concepts and expanded upon them and applied them to the world of cycling. The good and the bad of the heart rate, I'll go into in terms of, you know, how I view them. Heart rate can, in terms of the not so great about heart rate, is it's influenced by so many factors. The, right. the sleep, the stress, the caffeine that you 
ingested, you know, before the ride all affect heart rate, um, temperature, altitude, all kinds of stuff, right? So you sort of have to have this little bit of a filter when you look at pure heart rate or comparing rides. Heart rate also has a lag time. You know, you go out and do a 45 second all out 100% effort. Heart rate is not going to hit max heart rate, but your power, you hit max power for 45 seconds. It was absolute. Trevor, there's a whole bunch more, uh, so much more terms we want to talk about here. So we have a lot of external measures. Well, thanks to the power meter, basically. Uh, I think that's that's the primary difference, right? I'm seeing TSS, FTP, normalized power, intensity factor. Why don't we run through those real quick for everybody? Because I know we're going to be using them the rest of the conversation. And if you don't know what those four things are, you're going to get pretty lost pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think that's really what I, I hope we, we offer to all our listeners today is what these mean, because you hear them at the group rides, and a lot of people don't fully understand. And so I think we'll just, with, with the internals, uh, the, the key measures were the trimp, heart rate, and rate of perceived exertion. So with that, let's start with, I think one of the, the biggest and most valuable of the external measures is the, the training stress score. Yeah, certainly. And even before that, you, you can't get there without functional threshold power. Right. Good point. So let's start there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear people are talking about it on the group rides because it used to not be like that. It used to be, hey, what'd you do yesterday in four and a half hours? Okay, well, great. All right. Well, uh, you know, next level of that was I have an SRM. Oh, I did 4,500 KJ. All right. Well, great. Well, I I like to make the comparison then if if I and Jens Voigt, you know, weigh the same and we both ride at 250 watts for four hours, it's going to have a lot more effect on me than him. His threshold is so much higher. So that, you know, that gets to TSS and FTP, but functional threshold power at the, at its simplest definition, let's say it's what you can do for an hour, an all out 100% effort for an hour. Now through software and through WKO4, we now have a power duration curve metrics, and we now model your functional threshold power. So every new ride that you do, data comes in, we actually rerun the curve, and your FTP might actually change a little bit up or down. So that's at the core of all these advanced metrics is, is really that threshold power and, and really kind of that energy system change. And you could get to it by going to a, a lab and testing and getting those lab results as well. But getting to that one number, knowing that it isn't an absolute, this changes, it can change day to day simply based on your sleep quality and, and stress level, et cetera, how fresh you are. At the center of this is FTP. But I've heard that criticism of FTP, well, functional threshold power, this, this one hour power, doesn't match up perfectly with anything that's going on physiologically. So, so how come you landed on FTP versus a, a different metric? Yeah, I think early on it was a practical way to get to a value without, you know, we didn't have the software to actually do a modeling for you like we do now. Or fine, you can go to the lab and pay the money and, and find that ventilatory threshold out for yourself and plug that in. But certainly, I absolutely agree. It's not one hour for every single person. It was a very practical way to help educate people, number one, as to um, why you would even have this concept in the first place. And then how could they do a field test? One hour is very difficult. So it became a 20 or a 30-minute field test and subtract 5% from there to estimate your functional threshold power. But quite simply, it was a, a real practical way to get it out to the masses. And then from there, you can educate people. And now the, the software itself will fine-tune it to the individual based on your own unique power duration curve. I would say, let's say Cavendish and Wiggins they might have the same functional threshold power, but their curves are very unique. Yeah. One's a sprinter, one's this, the stage race climber. And that gets into the even newer science now of looking at those phenotypes and the curve, your unique curve, your power duration curve, and how training affects you as an, as an individual. We all agree that a lab-tested threshold is best, but that isn't always possible. So we caught up with the doctor in Hugo Saint-Milan, arguably one of the best cycling physiologists in the world, to get his thoughts on FTP and how to find the best number for you. 
that the FTP, I, I believe that it's not just about what in your FTP you have to take into account uh, heart rate as well. Heart rate is a, it's a truly physiological parameter, right? right. And heart rate, heart rate directly uh, represents what, what happens in the body, right? Uh, now, what doesn't represent necessarily what happens in the body? You can, you can be, you know, like thinking that your FTP, let's say, is a 325 watt, right? But actually, you know, might be different. You know, but you might see that heart rate keeps going up, going up, going up, going up because you're you're, you're getting more and more metabolic stress. We we know very well in the lab that the lactic response directly correlates with the heart rate. The ideal thing would be to train with a lactate meter, right? Uh, however, in the meantime, we need to uh, translate those metabolic uh, uh, responses into uh, something that we can use on a daily basis. So that's where heart rate is a great uh, parameter still. It's no old school at all, I think. It's a truly physiological parameter. So you, you mentioned um, FTP or, or, or functional threshold. So what exactly is functional threshold and, and what would be a good way to, to test that out on the road? Yeah, so that, that's, that's a good question. That, you know, functional threshold power is kind of like is, is the, 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 the maximal power output steady state or steady state you can sustain for a given effort. I don't think it's very scientific, to be honest, that term, but it's good, as good as you could get for maybe something outside the laboratory. But that's again where I would throw the heart rate because the heart rate, uh, you know, I think you want to go for an effort when you have as much as of uh, metabolic sustainability or steady state, right? And that's where you can look at the heart rate as well and and combine it. For example, you might see like, oh, I'm going to give it a shot and I think my FTP for this 40-minute effort, you know, is uh, 325 watts. But you see that at 325 watts, in minute five, it's, let's say, 175 bits per minute. In minute uh, 10, it's 185. Uh, you know, in minute seven, uh, in minute 12, it's, it's already 190, for example. So you know that that's not a metabolic sustained effort. It's, uh, it's not your truly FTP because you, you cannot sustain it. So, you, you know, and then, therefore, eventually what's going to happen, people are going to drop their power output and their performance because they haven't done that in. Whereas I think it's about finding a, that zone that can be sustained. So this commonly held concept of go do a 20-minute uh, time trial all out, then take your, your power, multiply it by 95%, and, and you've got your threshold. It sounds like you're saying that's overly simplistic. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, that's kind of like saying that 220 months is rich, and then for a percentage of that, I mean, it's very over-simplistic because we are, we don't know, you know, if, if at 90% of that maximum network you can sustain it or not. And some people might, and some people, they, they might not. I think it, it's over-simplistic. Being steady, but you have to push it, push it to the limit, you're not steady anymore, right? Right. That's about trial and error. You have to find your own pain. Right. And it's into how you've ever trained, and yeah, and, and, and also if they push too much the power output, that's going to increase the metabolic stress significantly. And if they cannot afford it because they don't have a good lactic capacity, it's going to come back to harm them and, and eventually it's going to decrease the power output. Speaking as the sort of uh, resident power Luddite in this room right now, how much does this matter? I mean, how, how, how much does this, uh, the difference between these different metrics, the difference between these different metrics is probably relatively small, right? And we were saying that FTP is going to change day to day anyway. I mean, at the end of the day, as much as we attempt to quantify uh, training, it is essentially impossible to completely perfectly quantify what we're actually doing, right? So if you remember, we had Rob Pickles in here a, a few episodes ago who he spent, is, he spent years in the lab testing people. And if you tried to use maximal lactate, steady state, VT2, and, and FTP interchangeably, he'd probably jump up and down and <laughs> yell and scream and storm out of the room. <laughs> yep. I've had all mine tested. I've had a lot of my athletes tested. And the reality is often you're talking a, a five-watt difference. It's, it's not that huge. The biggest thing I always tell my athletes is to change their perspective on FTP 
a lot of people get caught up into, well, that's a measure of how good I am. So the higher the number, the better. And they do all these tricks to, if they test themselves, to try to come up with the biggest number they can. The biggest mistake I see people make is they go, oh, well, I, I can do a 20-minute test to find my FTP, and I'll just skip that little part where you subtract 5%. Because <laughs> I like this number better. It is really important to find a number an accurate number versus the highest number because you're using it for training. You're using it for these metrics. And if your FTP is, say, 280 and you plugged 320 into whatever software you're using, you're going to get a lot of bad information that's going to overtrain you. And I just took on an athlete who did that. His FTP was 40 watts too high. He trained for about a month in November, burnt out, had to take three weeks off, went back at it in December, burnt out again. He's, he finally contacted me. He's like, I need a coach. Something's going wrong here. And I tested him and went, you have your FTP 40 watts too high. So went back, adjusted everything to the correct FTP. And he had been training completely wrong, been training way too hard. That leads into the training stress score. Once we have your th functional threshold power and a new ride file comes in, really the first thing it's done is we find your intensity factor. So if you did a one-hour ride at threshold, you would have an IF of one. Or most people do not, they don't do workouts at an intensity factor of one or above. Probably the majority of, of workouts are done at a .6 factor, right? <laughs> exactly. So roughly speaking, you know, most of your training is around 60, 70% or so of, in, of, of, of threshold, simply because you can't ride at threshold by definition for all of your training rides. And once we have the intensity factor, then it's more or less multiplied by the duration of the ride to come up with a training stress score. It's a nice number whereby you can quantify that ride. So even though Jens Voigt and I have different thresholds, we weigh the same and we rode at 250 watts for four hours, our TSS values will be dramatically different. His intensity factor was much, much lower than mine. And hence, his training stress score value will be lower and mine will be higher. Then he and I can actually compare each other's rides and kind of normalize it, if you will. We had a chance to talk with Aqua Blue Sport Pro Tour rider Larry Warbus, who believes strongly in a balance between numbers and feel. He had a few things to say about TSS. TSS is how hard the day was. And I know like the exact definition is like, 100 TSS equals one hour at threshold. I guess TSS is the one that I would pay most attention to of all those. TSS to me seems almost like the most accurate way to quantify the training. But then again, and I don't know the exact details of this, but I've heard there are some arguments to say like TSS isn't necessarily the be all end all because you can go do a two hour ride that's super intense and get like 200 TSS or something, say. Whereas like you can go do a six hour ride where you're just riding and you'll have like 120 TSS and like those have totally different effects on the body. And just because you did two hours all out doesn't necessarily mean it was harder than riding six hours. But, but I, I definitely think it's a pretty good, pretty good indicator and a good thing to, to follow. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark maker of next-generation power meters, including the SRAM XX1 Eagle power meter. The XX1 power meter unites Quark's D0 platform with carbon-tuned crank arms for robust, intuitive power measurement in the lightest ever mountain bike chassis. It's compatible with all of SRAM's one-by mountain bike drivetrains. Find out more at quark.com forward slash D0. Sometimes a loss of FTP can be beneficial you know, we now have new, newer metrics like functional reserve capacity, FRC, which is really measuring the amount of energy you have above threshold. So for criterium racing, cyclocross, like these short, hard bursts, if you're training that, that can actually bring your FTP down. And at the end of the day, that might be okay. You get to a sufficient enough level with your, your threshold power that now you need to focus on the race intensity stuff. The FTP might suffer, but you're going to gain in functional reserve capacity and have a better sprint at the end. If, if all we had to do is measure your FTP to get race results, it, it doesn't work that way. 
Right. Almost opposite of FRC is stamina, mm. your ability to ward off fatigue, even you know past an hour. Right. And we, that's a goal for Grand Fondo, for Ironman. All right. So we just threw a, a whole bunch of definitions at you. And now we're going to look at a, a little higher level because you can take all these different bits of information. And what we really want to see is the trends in you as, as an athlete. And so in the science, they, they talk about this as a, um, a systems-based model or impulse response. We'll leave those terms uh, aside. What you called in training peaks is the performance management chart. And you'll see most of the software out there, if you go Golden Cheat or any of the other tools, they, they have some sort of variation on this where we're trying to ultimately see how you're going to perform or come up with some sort of estimate of how you're going to perform. And again, this was uh, Bannister was one of the first ones to come up with this and said, really, your performance is based on this relationship between your fitness and fatigue. So if you have really high fitness, but you're also really fatigued, you're actually not going to perform that well. Or if you have decent fitness, but your fatigue is low, you might actually perform a little better. So we really want to see the, the interrelations to, to find your ultimate performance level. And that seems to have become the, the basis of this performance management chart that shows you an overview of your season and, and hopefully where you're at. Absolutely. So, it, it truly paints a picture <clears throat> of that unique individuals training program over time. And it is really exciting when you get a lot of data from somebody that have a lot of files, they sync over from Garmin connect or whatever, and you can just spot the trends and kind of teach them a little more about what they've been doing. And it's like, it gives them a lot of insights. You know, if we dig into some, some terms, people will hear, um, CTL or chronic training load. We really kind of reference that as being your fitness and your fitness over time. Unfortunately, you need 42 days worth of files to really make that accurate. Once you start out in training peaks and you're uploading your files, and after five days, you see this blue line going up and it's called your chronic training load. Keep in mind, it, it takes a while, just like it takes a while to, to build fitness. It's all based around research of, of you know aerobic conditioning, et cetera. So we, we look at our default is 42 days. It's, it's an exponentially weighted rolling average. So the training you did seven days ago will affect this number more than the training you did 21 days ago. Around 42 days is when it starts to get more accurate. So now that you have this fitness, the CTL, at the same time, we have this kind of magenta-looking line that, that's acute training load. And we refer to that as your fatigue. And, you know, you can't gain – in order to improve in any sport, you have to stress the system – you recover and you let that kind of fitness shine through. So if you go into a training camp, for example, and you do a really hard week, you're going to come out with of that with higher fitness, but you will have much, much greater fatigue will, will have been built up through, during that training camp. So intuitively, you would not have a race on if the camp ended on Sunday, you would not have your important race on Monday, right? The next day. Even though your fitness, by definition, is higher, your, your fatigue will be really high as well. And so I think we all intuitively understand that. And even if you're a self-coached athlete, you're managing your fitness, fatigue, and form. So form is simply the difference between the chronic training load and the acute training load, you know, or the fitness and the fatigue. As you mentioned, you can have high fitness, but if the fatigue is higher than your fitness your form is going to be pretty bad. So somebody can beat you, if, even if they have lower fitness level than you. If they are fresher, if they have lower fatigue, they can take advantage of you on, you know, on the road and, and get away from you right at the last second and, and win the race. So this is, as I mentioned earlier, this is really a, a picture that's painted through your training and every single individual athlete's PMC, or performance management chart, looks different. And there's no secret numbers that you're really trying to hit. It's more or less about you comparing against your own past history and trying to find insights that can make your training more valuable. I like to say, I mean, everybody intuitively does it. 
Yeah. They may not be quantifying it. Fitness fatigue and form. Right. That's what we're trying to manage to prepare for an event. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the major uh, – you have to be careful. You have to be very, very careful with these things, not to try to compare yourself directly to other athletes. And I think that that is, that is definitely well. Athletes are are competitive, right? <laughs> they want to co- compare themselves both on and off the bike, both in a race and online. You know, I, I definitely seen people post these kind of numbers. Oh, my CTL is this. Oh, I must be flying right now. My CTL is one hundred and forty. Whatever. Someone else is at one hundred, one hundred and ten. Maybe that person's actually faster. There's there's ranges that right. you, you probably need to be within mm-hmm. to have logical guesses. You know, you can't be a competitive category one rider with a chronic training load of thirty. You know, it <laughs> that'd be you know, you that'd might be, that'd be maybe my if you take some time off, you know, <laughs> but continuously and consistently be a very top competitor, you must be in a certain range. And those ranges overlap amongst the categories, right? Right. And this is something I've seen, and I've talked to other coaches who have seen this as well, that any time an athlete gets into CTL hunting, so we have all these different things you can hunt, strata <laughs> hunt, all these different, but uh, there's certainly CTL hunting of, oh, the higher I get my CTL, the, the faster and stronger I'm going to be. What I have seen is there's actually an optimal range for each athlete. For some, it's higher. For some, it's lower. But as you learn your athletes, you, you'll very quickly discover with one athlete, uh, if he or she gets over 120, they're in trouble where you have another athlete. And if they're not over 120, they're just not fit yet. Everybody's a, a little bit different. So it's an important thing to know about them each individual. Yeah. And I'd mentioned that it's the same for training stress balance, which is the form. You know, you, we see veteran Tour de France athletes that they can handle the third week of the tour because they've built up those years of resilience and, and stamina and they they can be in a negative state in the third week of negative 80 or whatever it might be training stress balance. Whereas, you know, a rookie first Grand Tour rider hitting those numbers will can literally crack them for the rest of the, of, of the year. Yeah, it is a very unique picture for each individual. Yeah, I'm at a negative 100 as of this morning. <laughs> oh, man, I'm at 80. <laughs> but, you know, you've done a lot more than me lately. I don't train anymore. Well, I don't get out to Colorado very much, so I might have not. Uh, Trainer rides. Well, I I always tell my athletes, don't do what I do because I'm an idiot and I need a coach. (laughs) Do as I say. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, Or it's the good old every coach needs a coach. But, yeah, I had five days in Colorado, and boy, did I take advantage of it. And this is a classic example. My CTL line just shot way up. But that that measure of fatigue is up at 177. And I can tell you, I was this morning – going up a, a pretty easy climb that's usually a recovery ride for me going, I don't remember it being this hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that just popped into my mind is we, we also have TSS based around heart rate. Cyclists do have other bikes. So you can't afford a power meter for every bike. You can have just simply heart rate on for a workout or you do a run or hike or whatever it might be in the off season, we, we do calculate TSS based simply on a heart rate as well. Mm-hmm. But we have to have a more or less a, a, an accurate threshold heart rate as well. The goal with heart rate is not to have higher heart rates. You know, <laughs> right. The goal is not to increase your threshold heart rate or input, um, but to increase the output or the wattage I can get out of that input. Right. No matter how fit you are, your threshold heart rate is your threshold heart rate, and it only just goes down with age. <laughs> I'm experiencing that, actually. Yes. I absolutely am. That being said, there there is also a huge – there's a, a tangent, but there's a huge amount of individual variability. I coached a, a woman who was young and a, a top pro. She was over in Europe, and her – endurance pace if she went out and did a four or five hour endurance ride she'd be at about a 95 heart rate i don't think i ever saw her break 150 Mm -hmm. huh so everybody's different even a young person yeah yeah so if all of this is making your head spin a little bit uh a a visual might help we're gonna put a performance management chart a, a a a sample. Maybe we'll take Trevor's. We'll take Trevor's from this week here in uh, Colorado and you can all... Don't do anything you see on it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take Trevor's and we're going to tell you not to do it and put it up on uh, 
on valonews.com along with this podcast. So if you access this podcast via iTunes on your phone or something like that, you're going to have to go use probably the Google machine and find the actual page where we hide this podcast on valonews.com. It will be up there. Before we talk about what numbers we think are valuable for training, let's hear again from Larry. He had a few things to say about the performance management chart and a metric we barely touched on, training zones. I think you don't want your TSB to get too far down there. I don't know. I guess like the CTL I've seen all over the place and I've performed well all over the place with the CTL. So it's hard for me to say whether what is useful about it. You know, I guess it's just a good good guideline, but I don't think it's, again, the be-all, end-all. And I also think like, say at the end of the season, you're a lot more fatigued than you are at the beginning. So maybe Whereas at the beginning of the year, you could perform with a really high CTL. Maybe at the end of the year, you need it to be lower to perform just as well. Most, most of the numbers are, are pretty important. And I guess it's just, uh, it depends what, I guess, what you're doing. So, so I guess for me, using the, I mean, just zones in general are, are pretty helpful. So I think my coach and I work with something like seven zones. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, uh, which is bad considering I'm saying that they're so important. But, you know, I guess being aware of your zones and being inside of whatever the zone that you're supposed to be in is really important. So that goes for recovery. Yeah, don't go too hard on a recovery day. Um, I think that's huge. Then, you know, it's like different zones make different adaptations. So I think it's really important to know what your zones are and what zone you're in at the moment (laughs) versus what zone you're supposed to be in. Because I was even talking to my coach about this and a guy he was working with was saying, you know, if you're always on the high end of your zone, you're almost not really in your zone, you know, like, like the center of the zone, surely you are working that system that you're supposed to be working in that zone. But things can change little by little every day. Even, you know, your threshold can even change a little bit each day. So if you're on the super high end of one zone or super low end of this other zone, you know, you might be in a totally different zone. The last thing we want to do today is provide a little bit of just practical guidance and advice, because a lot of this, it's useful information, but more, (laughs) more from a 10,000 foot view in how you want to use these, these various metrics and the way that you want to think about your training. Let's talk about something very practical. I want to start with what figures are on your Garmin or whatever computer you're using. I think Garmin is kind of like Kleenex at this point. We just it's become the brand name for a cycling computer. But anyway, we what is on your your cycling computer? What what metrics are on your cycling computer when you're out on a training ride? Let's start with Dirk. Yeah, I have multiple screens depending on what I'm doing, what where I'm at in the ride. I love having an interval screen where I can see, I hit the lap button, I've started the interval, I now have time. I don't really do intervals based off distance, so I don't. I kind of like bigger numbers, so I won't have a distance on my interval screen, but I'll certainly have time, current, watts. And I, I really do like a three-second averaging. Do you do a longer average for climb or climbing or anything like that? A longer average for, for climbing or anything like that? I mean, no, I, I like I just, to sort of set it to like 10 seconds, 30 seconds, because I don't know. I just sort of yeah, don't I mean, want to watch see, you jump I can around. definitely see doing that. I, I put mine at three seconds, so it's a little smoother. And then I see a, an accumulated normalized power for the interval I'm doing now. So I can see where I'm at, and I so I know the target of the interval, and it gives me immediate feedback during the interval the lap button to stop it. And then the overall screen, just giving me time, distance, TSS, normalized power for the ride so far. And, you know, around here, I, I definitely like having altitude gain. Yeah. What about you, Trevor? So you're getting yourself in trouble asking me this question because I just got a new bike computer and I discovered the custom data screens. Oh, yes. So I'm, I'm doing all, <laughs> right now, my favorite is, uh, it translates my ride into the number of, 
slices of pizza I can eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the IQ app. Huh? Oh yeah, no, right. That, that's a good one. That's the, that's all I look at. Slices I just wait till I get two that, pizzas that and I go home. Really rewarding. That can be motivational. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, I wanted For to quit beers. my ride have today. To have and beer one, right? <laughs> they have a beer as well, but the pizza was wow. one that was motivating me today because I was ready to turn around and after ten minutes and I looked down, it's like I haven't even heard a slice of pizza. <laughs> I'm riding, <laughs> but um, yeah, so. Really important thing that, that you're kind of implying here is what you look at on the screen when you're riding, what you look at after the ride should be different things. There are all sorts of things that you can use, but really at the end of the day, I, I look at the three basics, which is heart rate, power, and cadence. And depending on what I'm doing, I focus on one or the other. And I certainly, I don't look at straight power. If you look at power real time, it's all over the place. So either use a use some sort of averaging with it. I frankly look mostly at a 30-second power averaging, but at least a three-second or a 10-second. It's because your three-second and 30-second power are the same thing, Trevor. Always. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm going out for a long ride, a long, more steady ride, I'm really going to focus on heart rate simply because – you're, you're going to fatigue. Muscle fibers aren't going to work as well as they used to work. So by the end of the ride, you're recruiting more muscle fibers to produce the same power. What all this means is at the start of a five-hour ride, 200 watts is very manageable. At the end of a five-hour ride, that 200 watts might start getting pretty hard. So that's, again, looking at the, talking about this external side. So I really, on a long ride like that, want to see the, the internal factors and I'm going to focus more on staying at the same heart rate across a long ride. When I'm doing interval work, very intense work for shorter periods of time, I'm going to focus a lot more on wattage. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll add on to that, that I think more in the early season is when I focus on heart rate. Right. And as you get closer to the race season is when emphasis really tends to switch more towards power. So I, I absolutely agree that I'll have heart rate within the interval session to, to track that as well. And, and for a lot of riders, cadence is very, very important because that's their limiter. They can't do 100 RPM for even five yeah. minutes. And so, so for some folks that have to concentrate on that, having that within the, their um, output or right there on their handlebars is, it can be very valuable feedback. I usually don't ride with a computer anymore, so I'm, I'm not going to answer this question. <laughs> you know, there's also those days, <laughs> there's those days too where, you know, hey, we're trying to work on pacing. And so yeah. I want you to think, I want you to go out and do 250 watts for 20 minutes and tape over your Garmin mm. so you can't see it. And then let's look afterwards and see how close you were to that. Because we are trying to train the internal clock and the internal pacing and the numbers aren't going to tell you your energy reserves on that day. And when you're in the race, you have to have that internal kind of like senses and we can hopefully train that um, during, during training. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'm going to add to this is also know that the type of rider you are, I am a bit of a data geek, but I'm still going to generally train, right? So I do have TSS and I have left, right balance and normalized power and all the different metrics on my screen. And I can look at them and go, hey, that's kind of neat. If you are one of those people that chases numbers, be careful about having too many things on your screen that are going to make you forget about what you're supposed to be doing on the training ride and try to generate that big number. I used to do that sometimes. I'd get, to the, I'd get near the end of a ride and average power would be like right near 250 or something and i just like start riding really hard for no reason just because i wanted to put it over 250 for absolutely no good reason yeah i was definitely one of those people no, no and at, at the end of the day it's about what's the intent of the ride am, am i achieving that original intent with or without numbers and if you're not a numbers person my suggestion is get it saved get it stored you can go back and look at it right. learn from it or Hire somebody, do a one-hour consultation, the local coach, and kind of get some feedback from them on what they're seeing in the numbers and ask them questions. You don't have to be the expert, you know, just, but if you have the data, then experts can do a better job of helping you out. Which brings us to our final question of the day, which is, and I think we could do an entire podcast on this, and we sort of just have, actually. We'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll narrow it down a little bit. What are the first couple things that you look at 
after a ride when you've uploaded everything you're taking a look what are you trying to figure out was it is it how hard was that was it what are the primary concerns when you're when you first upload and and take a look on the laptop again the intent of the ride if it was an easy prescribed day or i knew it should have been easy did it fit the bill or if we were doing a very structured day if i just simply look at it visually without the absolute numbers but visually does it reflect what i had anticipated or what i prescribed as a coach even before looking at it just looking at the tss the time do those reflect the intent of the day the next level is you know i visually will look at it and see if it matches what i expected it to look like based upon the prescribed workout and then from there i might be like well okay, this was a hard day. It was really meant to push the envelope. How close did we get to some of our peak performances historically? Is it a top 10? Is it a top five? The aim is not to set a new peak performance every week, you know, and you simply can't. But are the trends going in the right direction? And sometimes I'll pull that data out and see how it compares over time. Depending on the athlete, what duration I'm looking at. Is it 12 second sprint or is it a 90 minute endurance, you know, zone three effort? Trevor? Yeah. When my athletes send me their files, I, I have basically a, an order in which I look at things. So I do start initially with the ride. And the first screen I look at, I have two graphs, both show their, their training zones colored. And I look at their heart rate and I look at their power within the zones to see how well they execute the ride. Were they training in the, the correct ranges or zones or were they all over the place? And obviously everybody has to have a little fun and you shouldn't be sitting there on a ride staring at, at whether you're in the right zone or not. But there's a difference between that and, and when you tell an athlete, okay, so using zone numbers, which I'm actually not a huge fan of, but I'll just go with the, the terminology. If you tell somebody to go out and do a zone one ride and you see half of the ride up in zone three and four, you know that that wasn't a very well executed ride and they're a little bit off track. The other things that I will initially look for in the rides is what we were talking about in that, that uncoupling of the heart rate and power. So I look for cardiac drift in the ride, especially longer rides. And that's where, let's say you started the ride at 130 beats per minute and 200 watts if you're at the end of the ride and now at 130 beats per minute, you're doing 120 watts, that's a lot of cardiac drift. And that's either fatigue or dehydration, but it's a sign that, boy, that, that ride did something to you. Then I immediately step back and look more for the trends. So over the course of the week, how is their heart rate and power distribution? Are they in somewhat the right ranges? As you know, I'm a big fan of Seiler's polarized approach, which is really that you should have 80% of your time at low intensity, 15, 20% of your time at high intensity. And actually in cycling, I'm finding more and more, you need probably 10% of your time in that middle. So I look for that sort of distribution. I, I look at that performance management chart to see how they're trending, where's their fatigue at, all those various signs, just to see where's this athlete going, what's going on with them right now. Relative to goal. Yep. Right. Yeah. And th so that's also really important. With all my athletes every week, I say, here's the goals of the week. Here, I actually talk about it in terms of purpose. I give them the purpose for the week. And success or failure of the week, I always tell my athletes, I'll, I'll give you workouts to do. I'll give you a volume goal. But here's the thing. If you meet the volume, you do all the workouts, but you fail on the purpose of the week, then it was a failed week. Mm-hmm. If you achieve the purpose of the week, but you don't get the volume, you don't get all the workouts, I still consider it a successful week. Yeah. Yeah. You agree? Yeah, definitely. And, 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 and referring to the goal also means how many weeks are we away from the mm -hmm. A priority event. As you get closer, I think that definition of success of the week needs to get tightened up. More and more things become more and more important as you get closer to the race. So it's kind of in re relation to the goal or the time frame we're talking about. How many more weeks do we have or days to, to the important race? Clearness of the purpose of the day becomes much, much more evident and necessary 
the more defined the goal is. Absolutely. Then you can compare the delta between where I'm at today, where do I need to be, what are my limiters. Not every weakness is a limiter, but it's a a weakness is a limiter if it's holding you back from success in that upcoming goal, you know, that, that race. So let's look at the demands of the race. Ideally, we have past year's data from races, and then we can see where we faltered and then make up for that in training going forward. Dirk, thanks for coming. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure. There you have it. All of the myriad ways to quantify your training. I think we've, we've covered that quite exhaustively, although this is a subject that we will, I'm sure, return to. I just said exhaustively and Trevor shook his head. So there's, there's apparently there's more. <laughs> there's more in there somewhere. Anyway, that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we would love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment while you're there. And also while you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which I am also on. Uh, that covers the covers news about the week in cycling, and you can hear me on that podcast as well. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash News and on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. Fast Talk is produced by News, which is owned by Competitor Group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. I'm Kelly Fretz. Here for Trevor Connor and Dirk Friel this week. Thanks for listening.